ADH-TV. I'm David Flint. The program is Save the Nation. Charlie Noble is my producer. And our guest today, our very special guest, is Chris Merritt, who's the Vice President of the Rule of Law Institute. And he's a, a very established legal commentator on the Australian and on Sky and various other parts of the media where he takes a very strong view in relation to the rule of law, which is highly appropriate at this particular time. <clears throat> as we approach the referendum on The Voice, and uh, I'm particularly reminded, uh, Chris, and welcome, incidentally, uh, Chris, I'm particularly minded by the quote that you mentioned in a piece. I think it was in The Australian, a quote from uh, Martin Luther King, that he hoped one day that his little children would be living in a world in which they would not be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I think that was a wonderful, relevant statement. Uh, mm. Chris, is that right? Look, it is, and uh, uh, to be fair, I, I must thank Noel Pearson for... Uh, for introducing Martin Luther King to the debate over the voice. Uh, uh, he cited uh, a very, very small section of Martin Luther King's uh, I Have a Dream speech, uh, which jarred a little bit with me, and I thought, hmm, that, that uh, is not exactly as I recall uh, that speech. So I dug it out and uh, read it again, and it's, uh, some, it's quite a, uh, I think it's 60 years old now, but it's, it's fundamentally at odds with the the approach of the voice. This is all of, Martin Luther King was all about uh, equality uh, rather than uh, racial segregation or racial division. He he viewed that as anathema. Um, he was a strong proponent for equality. And if you look at the um, at the voice proposal, I, I, I see it as the enemy of, uh, of equality. It, it would introduce racial division and segregation, uh, at least when it comes to civic rights, uh, for the first time in a long time in this country. This is where we came from all those years ago when we overcame it. So Martin Luther King, I think, think is, uh, uh, provides a good indication of the direction we need to go in. And uh, there was no no wish to include the Aboriginal people in that first, in the relevance in the, in the Constitution. No mm. wish at all. The, the principal concern of the founders was the abuse of those being brought in to work on mm. the plantations in Queensland and trying to cure that, which was the approach of Samuel Griffith. Is that not the mm. case? As I recall, I think that that is the case. Uh, look, the, the, the Constitution um, as it is now, uh, uh, to, to my mind, uh, could do with a little bit of updating, but uh, not the updating that we're being <laughs> asked, asked to do. If it was up to me, um, I think the, the referendum right now should be about uh, removing the race power, the last vestige of uh, 19th century uh, thinking, uh, remove it and replace it. Uh, uh, instead, what we're talking about now is exacerbating 
expanding the issue of race within the Constitution. I think it's exactly the wrong way to go. I think the the uh, the race power in practical terms has only ever been used to make special laws uh, for Indigenous people. This is since it was uh, possible for the federal government to make special laws on the basis of race for Indigenous people. Uh, and honestly, I, I think it's just so archaic, the, the idea of making special laws for people on the basis of race, for Indigenous people on the basis of race. I think it needs to go. Uh, if if anything, I'd replace it with a, a power to um, make laws on Indigenous affairs. That might be uh, more uh, palatable, but uh, race laws, I think that that's that time has passed. You might recall that uh, the previous proposals coming out for changes to the Constitution in reference to Indigenous matters uh, proposed precisely that. That was to take out the race power, but then insert a special power to deal with Indigenous matters. It's interesting mm. to go back to Menzies when Menzies was proposing what turned out to be the 67 referendum, which was finally reintroduced because it uh, expired. It was reintroduced by his successor, Harold Holt. Menzies was opposed to the federal government getting any power in relation to Indigenous matters. He thought it should stay with the states. If the Commonwealth got Indigenous powers, it would create a massive bureaucracy in Canberra, <laughs> which would be terribly wasteful. That's what he told Reg Withers. Reg Withers told me that uh, at the Constitutional Convention. And the other thing mm. that uh, Menzies wanted was the full integration of the Aboriginal people into the Australian community. They used to call it assimilation, but what they meant was full integration in terms of the same rights and the same duties, not some separate position. That was mm. uh, Menzies' strong view. Yeah, well, in many ways, I think Menzies might have been right. I think the source of many of the problems in remote Indigenous communities right now gets down to what effectively amounts to segregation. If you look mm. at it, that's what it is. It, it's um, excluding, effectively excluding uh, a, a large number of people on the basis of race. Uh, and it's, it's worse than that because they don't even have proper property rights. Uh, the way native title has worked out, it's, it's a communal form of title which limits the options of individuals who normally should have ownership of their traditional land, personal ownership, not communal ownership. And I think that uh, when you take away property from anybody, regardless of race, you limit their ability to improve their property or mortgage their property and start a business or invest or uh, any of the normal economic activity that, that leads to the development of an economy. And that almost certainly explains the the economic dislocation we see in many remote communities. So there are, I think this debate over the voice, um, a, a couple of good things have come out of it. And I think the uh, the, the, the best so far has been the, the emergence of uh, Jacinta Price uh, and her thinking on Indigenous affairs. And it sounds like Jacinta Price and Menzies might have a, a little bit 
in common. Uh, I don't think she's in favour of uh, segregation. She would almost certainly uh, approve greater integration in the broader community of Indigenous people. It, I think it's the only way to go. You can't just exclude people and leave them on on uh, remote settlements with few options. Um, it's just asking for social problems, and that's what we've got. It's interesting your reference to Jacinta Price and Menzies. And if, if you go back to Menzies' speeches introducing the first version of the 67 referendum, you find there he's seriously toying with the proposition that the race power be removed from the Constitution. Mm. He, he asked the question and he points out it had never been used. It was there in relation to the misuse of people being brought in from the Pacific Islands and from China and uh, into a state of near servitude, similar to the articles of clerkship, which I served my <laughs> master, or rather my mistress solicitor with, as uh, other <laughs> lawyers joked, because I was, I was article to a, what, what was referred to in those days as a lady solicitor. There weren't many oh, in Sydney. I, I remember yeah. Hal Wooten said to me, I said, he said, I suppose you did that out of your strong belief in the equality of the sexes. And I said, no, Hal, the reason was it was the only job I could get. Yeah, very rational. <laughs> but getting back very to, getting back to um, Menzies, uh, it's interesting that he had these advanced views and Jacinta. The other interesting thing, the other good thing that's come out of the referendum I have found is that it has completely exposed a new ruling class who seem to have occupied a number of the boards of the leading mm. companies, the big sports and big banks and uh, the big companies, and they seem to be very much in favour of extracting vast amounts of rewards for themselves, but in addition they seem to have moved very far to the left politically because they're, they're all mm. in favour of the yes case in this referendum. They're all giving shareholders money to the yes case, uh, but they've exposed themselves as being part and parcel of this new ruling class, which seems to be intellectually towards the left and very much in favour of personal enrichment. Look, I, I, I've got a view on this. This might be a little bit contentious, but I, I think that's actually a good thing that it's been exposed. Oh, I agree. It will almost certainly break the nexus or the perception of a nexus between the uh, the coalition and business, because if you look at this referendum, uh, the leading uh, figures in the business community and our leading organisations in business overwhelmingly have lined up um, in favour of yes, which to my mind is in favour of racial division. And on the other side of the argument, you've got the coalition, which is against uh, racial division and is having to fight against um, the, the immense wealth of the business community that has been uh, used to mobilise advertising and marketing and all sorts of things. So I think long term, this could be a very good thing. It might, getting back to Menzies, it might restore the perception of the Liberal Party as uh, uh, the party of the, the forgotten people rather than the party of business, because it's clearly no longer the party of business. And I think long term, that's a very good thing. I think you're right. I think Menzies was really uh, 
more... He, he was the, the, the... Or his party that he established was the party of small business and farmers, the forgotten people who weren't, who weren't protected either by big business or by big unions. That was, mm. that was his argument. And, of course, unionism has fallen considerably in Australia. It's now restricted to, I think, about 10% of the workforce and mainly the public side of the workforce rather than mm. in the private sector. And so much mm. of the, what was formerly what were formerly employees have become small business people in the trades, for example. Mm. We do. Mm. It's an interesting change. Can I move to something else? And it was raised, uh, I first heard it raised by my young producer, Charlie Noble, who's not a lawyer, but he said, looking at the original version, or the, what is the version of the referendum, that making representations, he, he pointed to making representations. He said, this will cause problems. Uh, the mm. interesting thing is that uh, at the time that uh, we're recording this, there's a piece in The Australian by the former Chief Justice of Australia, Robert French. And he says something which I find extraordinary. He says, he, he gives a number of points why we should be voting yes. And he says this is of the voice. As an advisory body, there is little or no scope for successful litigation associated with its work. Little or no scope for a successful litigation. This is after a couple of federal court cases where major, major programs to mm -hmm. develop the country, to develop assets in the country or offshore have been stopped because the people involved, the, the governments involved haven't made sufficient contact or listen to the representations mm. of traditional owners, including one relating to offshore assets. And this concern of the traditional owner was something to do with the, something concerning the whales in relation yes. to this area and the indigenous attachment to the whales. Now, this is the federal court. And, and here we mm. have a former Chief Justice of the High Court saying that, oh, the High Court, uh, I'm not saying that the High Court is saying there'll be little successful litigation associated mm. with this work, and I found that extraordinary. Is, is that your feeling too? Exactly, exactly. I think uh, it, it gives a, a very um, a courageous view, uh, I'd put it that way. Uh, I've got a lot of time for uh, Mr French, uh, but I think on this one, I think it needs to be seen through the perspective that Mr. French is one of the leaders of the the uh, the yes campaign. Uh, I think it just doesn't make sense. If, if you're going to have an institution with constitutional standing to make a representation to the executive and the parliament, uh, there's some very respectable uh, figures, uh, uh, legal figures, who have argued that that would almost certainly give rise to a, an implication that those on the receiving end of those uh, representations uh, would be subject to a constitutional implication to at least consider them, read them. Uh, and if they don't, you would imagine that the, the normal principles of administrative law would apply and any resulting decisions quite possibly could be struck down and the decision maker told to go back and make the decision properly after considering a, a relevant consideration. And I don't think there'd be anything more relevant than a 
constitutionally endorsed representation by uh, an organisation that has standing under the constitution. You can't simply uh, ignore that. Uh, I think it's it's even look even if you accept that Mr. French is correct. I think that the, he's arguing about the um, he's discussing the the technicalities of putting um, this new system in place. I don't think you need to go that far in order to oppose it. I think that it's fundamentally wrong in principle to even consider establishing an entity based on race that would divide the country in terms of civic rights. Uh, they would be determined on race in future. And I, I don't think uh, that's how we want Australia to be. I, I, look, Indigenous people have fought long and hard to gain equality of citizenship and voting rights, and that victory has been in place for decades now. I think it was 84 that uh, um, the government of Bob Hawke made, uh, uh, made it mandatory for the optional right of voting in federal elections for Indigenous people. He brought Indigenous people onto exactly the same footing when it comes to federal elections as everybody else. That was a long, hard struggle to, to attain civic equality. And I think we should be very wary about turning back the clock to times when uh, this country uh, determined... Uh, placed impediments on people because of their race. We've overcome that. We don't want to turn around and go back. That's uh, Anyway, that's a long roundabout way of getting to the point that uh, Mr French's uh, argument I think is interesting. Uh, I think it's probably incorrect. It's a very courageous call, but I think it is probably incorrect. But in order to oppose the voice, you don't need to go there. It, it's... It, the weakest part of the voice is the the principle of dividing the country on the basis of race. That's a direct threat to equality of citizenship, and that's that should be fatal, I think. I agree, uh, and I think the second thing is that it'll make the country, particularly for any form of reform government, ungovernable because of the amount of litigation. On that, uh, mm. I, I would... Uh, I'm very much persuaded by what uh, Ian Callanan, a former Justice mm. of the High Court, I think the most federalist of all judges of the High Court since the original bench. There, I don't yeah. think there's been such a strong federalist on the High Court since, uh, since that first bench, who were all federalists. And you might remember yeah. that uh, they were the, you'll remember from constitutional law, that uh, they were... That first bench developed the concept of the uh, reserve powers, that uh, those powers not in the Constitution given to the federal authorities or shared by the federal authorities with the states were exclusively for the states, which yeah. to me see, it still seems to be obviously correct than the obvious intention of the founders and those who entered into the Constitution. Well... Look, it, it, yes, uh, but after the engineers case, uh, that that's all um, uh, a theoretical argument. But the the fact that we've got the engineers case 
um, you might have seen the uh, some discussion, public discussion about the the latest opinion by Professor Nick Aroni from um, the University of Queensland, and post the engineers case, which uh, said the federal powers need to be given an expansive reading, and there's no such thing as uh, uh, a reserve power for the um, for the states or respecting the the exclusive powers of the states to that extent. What Professor Aroni has done, he's got a paper, and it's a very compelling argument. He's arguing that once you, uh, once the voice was, was to make a, a representation, uh, the, the wording of the constitutional provision uh, would give the parliament, the government in effect, the ability to make laws on matters relating to the voice. And he argues that that would give the, the government the a new head of power to legislate to implement the recommendations of the voice, whether or not they are within the existing powers of the Commonwealth. So the voice could make a, a representation that goes beyond the, the limited powers that are vested in the Commonwealth by the Constitution. And Aroni argues that because this, uh, this new entity would uh, have constitutional authority to make representations and uh, the Commonwealth, in order to implement those re uh, representations, could legislate uh, on matters that are currently outside its jurisdiction including uh, matters that would otherwise be considered an improper infringement of uh, state matters. Uh, so it could exacerbate the problem by expanding greatly the, the powers of the Commonwealth versus the states. It's a shocking thought. It is. I, I, hadn't, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, and it, it would mean, for example, if The Voice adopted a proposal which has been made recently that juries sitting in a, a case against an Indigenous person, juries sitting in a case against an Indigenous person would have to consist of a certain number of jurors, say 50% of the jurors, would have to be Indigenous. In other words, mm. there would be a separate stream of justice for the Indigenous compared with the rest of us, which mm. would mean that uh, you'd have different criminal trials. You, they could even make a recommendation about the judge, apart from mm. the, the jury. And that would then mean, according to Professor Aroni's interpretation, which doesn't seem to have come into Mr French's uh, paper this morning, but that would mean that uh, the Commonwealth could then legislate to give effect to that recommendation, although it's clearly a matter outside of the authority of the federal parliament. It, it's exactly right, but it's consistent with this uh, un undercurrent of uh, uh, separatism that seems to be bubbling up in various bits of, um, of the legal system. We've, we've already had the Uruk uh, Justice uh, Commission in Victoria uh, seriously argue uh, for a separate 
uh, indigenous uh, uh, criminal justice system uh, and uh, uh, to apply for generally and for uh, uh, child protection. Uh, in New South Wales, the, the DPP uh, seriously, uh, in an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald, seriously revealed that there had been a number, many I think is the term she used, uh, many criminal prosecutions that were terminated because lawyers at the office of the DPP considered that witnesses would not be subjected to a culturally safe environment. Now, I don't know how you would define a, a culturally safe environment, and I'm pretty sure that I haven't seen any legislation go through the New South Wales Parliament permitting uh, criminal law or criminal prosecutions to be terminated uh, when a lawyer in the DPP makes a determination based on what I don't know that uh, a culturally safe environment would not be available. Uh, th these are very worrying developments. Uh, and I, th I think a successful vote in the referendum would supercharge this trend. And I think it's something that needs to be um, called out and addressed. I've got no problem at all in the, the criminal justice system um, adopting uh, flexible approaches uh, in order to uh, address the uh, innate uh, characteristics of people who come before that, We're before the criminal justice system. We've seen that with the way... Um, uh, the courts now deal with sexual assault matters. Um, in it, it is possible for witnesses in these cases to give evidence remotely. It's not necessary to turn up in court and confront uh, an accused, uh, a person accused of sexual assault. It can be done remotely. Those sort of things I can understand. But going further and adopting a, a, a separate race-based uh, system, uh, I think is just anathema. And it, it gets back to that fundamental principle of equality before the law. Uh, it, we don't want separate systems of law for people based on race. I think that is just nonsense. Now, that said, if, if translators are necessary, uh, I don't think uh, that would be objectionable. But a separate system, as proposed in Victoria, or cancelling uh, prosecutions because of uh, some assessment by a lawyer in the DPP's office uh, without statutory support, I, I think is just outrageous, quite frankly. And the law has always made uh, arrangements for those who are culturally different. I can remember years and years ago when I was a student looking at a district court practice and seeing that, in New South Wales, and seeing that uh, different forms of oaths were prescribed for different mm. religions and going to all sorts of uh, exotic sounding religions with different ways of swearing an oath. And there's always, as you say, been an understanding of, I think, a legal requirement, has there not, in relation to the provision of translators? Mm. Uh, in relation to court matters. All, all of these are the sorts of things that you would expect. But your, your objection that it uh, treats races differently 
I think is mm. fundamental. But there's also another problem with that is there not, and that is the very weak definition of what is an indigenous person and mm. the failure of both the politicians and the judges to tighten that up against abuse. And we now have people who are spuriously and obviously not indigenous claiming to be indigenous and others with a mere soupçon, an mm. almost suggestion of indigenous blood claiming great uh, relevance in relation or great advantage in relation to that. Then you have states giving what I would call lottery legislation, that is allowing uh, all sorts of advantages curious advantages to the indigenous. We saw, we saw the claim of the, the parkland or whatever it is off Balmoral Beach in Sydney. We saw what happened in Western Australia when they introduced legislation requiring indigenous approval and all sorts of people emerging, uh, coming out and making claims for, for payment for assessors and so on and travel and so on in relation to the most minor activities on land in mm. Western Australia. Th these are all things which disturb Australians and I think it disturbs the equality which we, the legal equality which we all quite rightly expect. Look, David, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think the, the problem um, is once you start dividing people by race, instead of treating people as individuals wherever possible, um, it opens the door for horrendous things. Like the, I agree with you. I think the 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 uh, the definition of uh, what is an Indigenous Australian at the moment, this three part uh, definition that came out of Mabo. Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, identification, descent, and recognition mm. by an Indigenous community. I think that's. Uh, that's okay, but if you're going to start allocating um, resources and civic rights um, uh, on the basis of indigeneity or Aboriginality, um, it, it opens the door to something which I consider to be absolutely repugnant, and that's uh, a serious body of race laws. I mean, race laws, for goodness sake. I thought um, we left that behind almost a century ago, uh, in about 1945, when when uh, that question was resoundingly resolved in in Europe, uh, I don't see why we need to uh, turn back the clock and open the door for a new body of race laws because that would inevitably flow if um, the unless this trend which we're seeing of racial uh, segregation in the law and civic rights, unless that is stopped, um, it will inevitably, there will inevitably be pressure for for race laws to be debated. And it, it's horrendous because that would exacerbate this division. Instead of seeing Australians as Australians, we'd start to see people um, uh, by their race. And that's where we came from us 120 years ago with white Australia. And I, I don't think we want to go back there. I gather that you're not impressed by the argument which was made on the ABC by the ABC compare of a program and also by Mr. Pearson, Mr. Noel Pearson, that uh, 
indigeneity has nothing to do with race, that it's not a race question. You're not impressed Look, it, by that. It's a distinction without a difference. That's one, <laughs> one point. And the point, if you get right down to it, it's not about how you divide Australia. A division based on race or indigeneity or descent or uh, uh, family, however you want to describe it, it's still a division. And that's what we're looking at with this referendum. And that's what the uh, the Uruk Commission in Victoria and the, uh, uh, the DPP in New South Wales, that's what they're looking at. They're looking at dividing this community, um, uh, however you want to describe it, race, dissent, it doesn't matter. It's the division that's the point. And I, I think it's it's disingenuous for the proponents of the yes case to be prosecuting this uh, indigeneity rather than race point. It's, it's no answer uh, to the fundamental objection that... Uh, the voice is fundamentally about division and it, it's unnecessary, completely unnecessary. One of uh, my concerns is that if the voice were enacted, it would be targeted by those who have marched through various institutions in Australia, in particular, for example, the education departments. And I mention the education departments because I think that there has been a lot of indoctrination coming out of education in Australia. Mm. And this is reflected by the polling concerning The Voice because the only groups now which seem to give much support to The Voice seem to be the young, particularly those who have been exposed to university education. And Look, the... The, the um, sorry to interrupt, but the, the, our organisation, the, uh, the Rule of Law Institute and its sister organisation, the Rule of Law Education Centre, has, has done a bit of work on this. And in New South Wales in particular, uh, it's now possible for kids to go through high school uh, without studying any civics, none at all. Uh, it's mandatory, however, to study a substantial amount of Indigenous history. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It's probably a good thing to be required to study Indigenous history. But the absence of a compulsory component of civic education in New South Wales high schools is its a national disgrace. No other state uh, has downgraded civic education to the extent of the uh, successive New South Wales governments. Uh, I can't understand why they've done it. And it strengthens the argument um, or the reality that large numbers of school leavers are effectively not prepared properly uh, to make decisions about the, uh, the future of the Constitution. Um, many, yeah, we, we did the survey and... and uh, many Year 10 kids actually thought the outcome of the referendum or a referendum would be determined by the government. Others thought it would be determined by King Charles <laughs> in, in London. Uh, the, the, the extent of uh, ignorance about civics is just mind-boggling. Uh, it, it's fundamental. The Americans, uh, we can learn a lot from the way the Americans drum into their kids 
the reality of, of where they came from and how they got the country that they've got and how it's governed. Um, we, in New South Wales anyway, I think we've got a long way to go. What do you say to uh, the proposal from Tony Abbott? And uh, it's coming up in a conference we're arranging uh, on the 9th. This is the Australians for Constitutional Monarchy where we're looking at the future of the Constitution through our particular eyes. But one mm. of the things that Tony Abbott has proposed is that the preamble to the Constitution be amended, if you can amend that preamble. It's not the preamble to the Constitution, it's the preamble to the Constitution Act. So that it says, right. whereas the people of the several states, humbly relying on the blessings of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in, before, in an indissoluble federal commonwealth with, then it says, with an indigenous, I think it's an, with an indigenous background, no, no, with an indigenous, indigenous heritage, a British foundation and an immigrant character. So it's an indigenous heritage, a British foundation and an immigrant character. So he's covered all the groups. Do you, do you think yes. that would go down well? Look, um, it, it's, it would go down well. I feel sure that um, it would uh, fly in, in terms of popularity. Um, it depends how it's implemented. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, an address by by uh, Harry Gibbs um, some time ago about inserting forms of recognition um, into the Constitution. And uh, this is before uh, we're talking about the voice. Sort of, this is just recognition. And he was warning that any form of recognition uh, plugged into the, con uh, the the constitution would give uh, could give uh, some more adventurous members of the high court uh, the scope to do all sorts of things that are, are not foreseen. Um, I think that's he's, I would never differ with uh, a view from from Harry Gibbs, but uh, if that's true, I, I think we'd need to be very careful about. Uh, changing anything to do with the Constitution. Well, he was a very wise judge. He, he wrote a, uh, a text which ACM published, which was about the Republic. It wasn't saying whether one should become a Republic or not. It was just the considerations involved in making mm -hmm. that change. Uh, but do you, think, do you think the High Court or the judges, because the other judges would be seeing it, uh, would they be in any way affected by the fact that this will be a new chapter in the Constitution? We've never had a chapter, mm -hmm. a new chapter in our Constitution. And it has, uh, I, I, I actually counted the words, or rather my computer mm -hmm. counted the words. It's almost half the size of the smallest chapter in the Constitution, which is the miscellaneous chapter about the capital and deputies mm. to the Governor-General and things like just the miscellaneous. It's half mm. the size of that. That suggests to me a bit of a blank cheque. And well, how, would, how would the judges react to that? This is a new chapter. You can imagine counsel arguing, Your Honours, you've got to have regard to this. It's a special thing. We've never had this before. Well, is that a relevant... Do you think it would be a relevant argument to argue on the uh, basis of the, the fact that it's a chapter? 
Look, I, I, I think it would be absolutely important. Um, as I understand it, the, uh, the court frequently refers to the structure of the Constitution, not simply its content, but the structure when deciding what's important and how much weight to allocate to various things. So if, you, if the voice uh, were approved, there would be a new chapter and it would give this new race-based institution um, equivalent status in terms of structure to the other great institutions of state, um, such as the legislature, the judiciary, uh, and the parliament, uh, which strikes me as just bizarre, completely and utterly bizarre. But that would be the reality. And uh, uh, it would strengthen the hand of uh, high court judges if they wanted to uh, uh, use that, that elevated status uh, for who knows what ends, but uh, once you elevate something to a chapter in the Constitution, not simply an additional provisions tucked into an existing part of the Constitution, it's a signal to the court that this is a major change. That's that's the and and the the intention of making a major change would have to be given effect. Uh, by the court. It couldn't simply be ignored and played down and uh, it would mean that the the people of this country have decided that uh, uh, separate uh, civic rights determined on the basis of race is a very important matter and the court quite possibly would view it accordingly. So it's another argument for throwing it out. Now, the Electoral Commission has stated the obvious, which I thought everybody knew, and that is that uh, if you vote in different polling places, your vote, once you've crossed off the roll in that other polling place, presuming that they're not linked, that uh, that, uh, that vote will go into the pile of votes and nobody will be able to find that again. It won't be in any way distinguishable because it's a secret ballot. and. Uh, it seemed to me that uh, it points not for the commission but for the the legislators. Why don't they ensure that there's an electoral roll, which would be a simple thing to have, so that when your when your name is struck off, it's struck off in every one of the, for example, the forty different places that I can vote in my electorate. I assure you, I don't. <laughs> and the second thing is, well, why don't we do what is done in most, I think almost all OECD countries have some provision to ensure that the person voting as the person, the person he claims or she claims to be through, so, for example, typically through photo identification, some form of photo identification. Mm. Why doesn't why do, it's the legislators, not the Electoral Commission that has to do this. Why mm. don't the legislators do this? Or is it, as I suspect, that the Hawke government decided when they said they wanted to make it easier to vote, they did intend to make it easier to vote? <laughs> uh, look, I, I think after, the, uh, after this vote, after the, the referendum, there's a, uh, a couple of things that need to be addressed, and I think that's one. Uh, once the heat's gone and uh, the legislature can look at this impartially, I think the yes, tightening up the um, 
the procedures of voting and probably addressing that risk which you uh, referred to. I think that's one. But the other one is uh, the one that I found absolutely astounding and uh, ticks and crosses uh, how how a, a tick is a yes but a cross is not a no. Uh, I think that needs to be addressed. In, um, there, there's no... Uh, uh, once the heat's gone uh, and there's no political advantage for one side or the other, I think a rational decision by the, the parliament uh, would make it pretty clear that in future referendums, a tick is a yes and a cross is a no. It's it's just common sense. Uh, the fact that the, the Electoral Commission has a practice, a past practice of uh, uh, viewing a, a cross as informal I think that needs to be addressed because it, it's clearly not the intention of people when they, they fill out their, their ballot paper and they put a cross. It's pretty clear that it's a, it's a no. Anyway, that's, that's for after the vote. Yes. The, according to all of the opinion polls, including those obviously uh, sympathetic, the, the people who control the polls, I'm not saying that they're acting improperly, but there are some who by the nature of their ownership are obviously sympathetic to the voice, but mm. it is the conclusion of all the polls that if, in a, if a referendum were held uh, tomorrow, that uh, the referendum would be lost and lost significantly, I think. Mm. In, uh, in the Republic poll, we did ask a noted expert at the time, uh, Malcolm McCarris, uh, oh, yeah. whether, whether he thought that there would be a problem with fraud in the referendum. He said, yes, there will be fraud. He said, but it won't be significant because he thought that the result would be strong. He didn't say which way it would be strong, but he thought that a strong result would emerge. And it mm. looks as though we're going to have a strong result. Of course, we can't, we can't be sure of that. We can't be those of us who are supporting the no vote. Uh, mm. can't afford to be complacent, but it does look as though it's going to go one way. Now, that will mean if the government, if the government is uh, keeping to what it has indicated, that it won't go ahead with the Republic referendum in the next term. I think they, they would be most unwise to go ahead with that from the point of view of whether they would win it. Uh, is that your feeling? Look, I, I think the, the best outcome uh, clearly would be a no. Uh, but beyond that, I, I think the stronger the the, uh, the no vote is, the, the better. We need a clear decision on this. I think the worst outcome would be a close, um, a close vote one way or the other. That would um, not put an end to the divisions that have emerged during this campaign. It, it, this is the most extraordinary uh, referendum campaign when you think about it. Most referendums are designed to bring the community together. Uh, you just got to think about 1967. I think the vote, the vote then was like uh, 90.2, 92% or something in favour of the change. Uh, uh, there was a broad consensus and that's how constitutional change should be made. There's a, and that's how the, the, uh, the provision in the constitution uh, assumes that th there would need to be a broad consensus. But this one, there's, there's, it's so extraordinary. There's been no general mm. uh, convention 
does, and the purpose of a convention is to give the general community uh, an opportunity to have their say. So they've got a stake in the future structure of the constitution. It's not simply imposed from above by by uh, the government of the day uh, enacting the wishes of a, uh, a select group of people. Um, that's how it, it should have been. And even if you look at the uh, the parliamentary inquiry, uh, which was uh, very brief, uh, called on March 30, the community was given three weeks to make submissions and then the report in May uh, uh, made one recommendation. We recommend no change. So, uh, so much for for involvement by the general community. But look, on 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 the Republic referendum, I think the big lesson, if there's going to be a referendum on the Republic, I think the biggest lesson from from this one is that. Uh, people need to know what they're voting on. They need a model. And unless there's uh, a, a model for the voice, which there isn't, or uh, a model for a future republic that is at least as equivalent, I know you won't, dis- you won't agree with this, <laughs> but unless it's at least as equivalent and strong and effective yeah. as the, the current Westminster system, I can't oh, see I think, that I think that's perfectly correct. And uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. You've been very generous with your time and we do appreciate it and we'll try and get this up as uh, soon as possible. But thank you very much, Chris. It's, uh, your views are always uh, to, be, to be paid great attention to because of your role in the defence of the rule of law. So thank you very much, Chris. Quite OK. Quite OK, David. Any time. Good. This is ADH-TV. I'm uh, David Flint. The program is Save the Nation. The producer is Charlie Noble. And until next time, thank you.